Hi, Vanessa and Matt. It's Casper calling in from Brooklyn. I'm so excited for this new start of reading Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone slash Sorcerer's Stone. And I just want to wish you both so much luck and to tell you that I love you and respect you so, so much. Bye. I'm Vanessa Sultan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Matt's first episode as co-host on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I feel like we should throw you a party. It feels like a party. I mean, just in our little Zoom box here. It's like, this feels like a party, right? It's a party! For those of you who missed the parade that Casper threw himself on his way out the door, Casper has left as an official co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. He will be a very regular guest, including at the top of this episode. He's not gone anywhere in our hearts or in our minds. But we are so excited to be joined by Matt Potts, dear friend, professor, Episcopal priest. And Matt, we thought that the best way for us to introduce you to the Harry Potter Sacred Text community officially as co-host would be for me to do a 30-second recap of Matt Potts. That sounds great. I mean, if you can fill 30 seconds. I've saw, I mean, you already, you already hit all the high notes, I think. But give it a try. Let's see how it goes. I could fill 30 seconds just talking about how great your wife and kids are. That's right. So those are they're basically my biggest highlights. Again, you just covered them and you have 30 seconds to go. Okay. Count me in. I can do it. Three, two, one, go. Matt Potts, born in Michigan, lovely family, middle of two brothers, middle of three with two brothers. He uh, goes to college and joins the Navy, and then he's like, I hate the Navy. And then he meets his lovely wife while he's touring the country as part of an admissions committee, and he watches a lot of Gilmore Girls at this phase in his life. And then he goes to Harvard Divinity School, and then he goes to Harvard and gets his PhD, and then he gets married at some point in there, and he has three beautiful children. And then the best thing in his life happens to him. He meets me, and I eventually convince him to co-host the podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Boom! Well, that's great. You were actually able to include some highlights that you missed before, namely Gilmore Girls, which was a, a very formative six years of my life. I will say I missed a couple of key things. Like at some point, you became a priest, an Episcopal priest. That's true. At some point, you met Stephanie Paulsell. Uh, that's when I went to Harvard Divinity School, yes. What, how do you think that all of that is going to impact how you read these books? Well, I think that one of the primary lenses I'm going to bring to reading these books is as a parent. I'm old enough that I didn't read these books as a child. And actually, I encountered them for the first time reading them to my kids and just finished, actually sort of with the podcast, finished book seven recently with my daughter. And so seeing how they form sort of the imaginations of other people (laughs) in the world, especially people I love so much and care about so much, it really opens a window on how we can see these books as resources for moral and spiritual formation that I can see my kids like wrestling with these questions and asking hard questions that the book raises. And I'm able to encounter them like with that just on the surface of our conversations, of our readings, of our imaginations around around these books. Honestly, I think that's for me, that has a much bigger role than even the the fact that I'm a priest or a professor of religion. I mean, I'm interested in questions about what it means for a thing to be religious at all. And so I'm interested in thinking about these as a sacred text. And also I minister to community as a priest. And so I think a lot about how communities gather around ideas, around questions. And so I have those kinds of experiences to bring. But the the thing that really is sort of really framing my encounter with the books as we enter them is just watching my, my kids read them and, and reading along with them. Yeah, it's really fun in, in my little family here that 
the kids, Peter and I, don't have many like central texts that we all know except for Harry Potter. And so we can have these like really interesting moral questions or questions about identity. Is the first Moody that we meet in book four a good teacher, even after we find out that he's Barty Crouch Jr., right? Like those are rigorous conversations that we can have as a family. And it's it's just such a gift. It's such a gift to our family. And and it's great just like with friends or community building, right? You meet a stranger and you find out they're a Harry Potter fan and you just immediately have this shared thing that you can talk about. Yeah, I think across unpredictable spans of like social difference, right? Like I, I remember one of the old ladies from our church who came to watch the kids once. One of the first things that she asked our kids was, you know, which Hogwarts house are you in? Because she had read them with her daughter, right? When her daughter was younger. Right. And so like, and it provide again, provided those people who maybe didn't have a lot to talk about as they met each other, an immediate connection and understanding because, you know, she's Ravenclaw, you know, my my son's Gryffindor, whatever. Like they know something about each other too, or at least think they do. And then that it provides a, a starting point for conversation, which is what this is and what, what makes it so beautiful and useful. Yeah. So Vanessa, we talked about why I'm excited to read these books with you for the first time, but obviously for you, this is a reread. You're encountering these books again. You're entering into conversation with them again. Tell me about what you're excited about or what you're looking for in these books, especially like what you're looking for that's different or what you think needs to be different in the way you read them this time. I'm excited to question the conclusions I came to. Like I came to the conclusion that Draco is a coward who doesn't evolve. And I came to the conclusion that Dumbledore is flawed in ways that like sadden and frustrate me. And so I'm interested in reading Dumbledore knowing that and therefore not being disappointed by him this time, but like looking for the moments in which I can find things that are completely understandable about him. And same with Draco, right? I, I don't want to see him as a coward. How can I empathize with Draco as I reread these books? So I'm excited to just sort of force myself to do different readings. Yeah, you used a phrase, Vanessa, that I thought was really important. You said that Dumbledore saddens and frustrates you, and so you want to have more empathy towards him. And I think that's right. I mean, I think that Dumbledore does that for me too, as does Draco, as do many characters in this book. And I think that's the that's the hard thing about community and building communities, right? Like, we all sadden and frustrate each other. That's just what it means. And that learning how to love and build a loving community is learning how to manage our sadness and frustration at each other in a productive way. But also, obviously, there's a line over which one steps, where the boundaries of the community become firm. And you have to say, okay, I am willing to work with my sadness and frustration. But there's there are certain forms of betrayal. Obviously, this happens in the, in the series of books which are beyond the pale and that we actually have to take a stand against and say, you you are not of us, whatever, right? And like, that's a tricky thing to discern. And like, when is a person's failure so much that we need to, you know, draw that line? And this, I mean, this we can take this out of the world of the books. We can talk about this with characters in sort of a fictional sense, but we also have the author of these books, J.K. Rowling, right? And that's a line that this podcast has negotiated and it's going to have to continue to negotiate to decide what is our relationship to the books what does it mean to be sad and, and frustrated by J.K. Rowling's transphobia? And then also, what does it mean to actually draw a line with certain of her comments and her behaviors and her public stances in our practice of trying to build a loving community of people around these texts? And that's a question that we're trying to answer. Like this podcast is the we don't have an answer yet. We're trying to use our conversations each week to develop our our most loving and best response. I mean, within the books first, right? 
I just know that if the book was from Draco's point of view or from Dumbledore's point of view, I would have a tremendous amount of empathy towards them, right? And that is what I love about fiction is that through fiction, the biggest lesson that I have learned is to assume good intentions in other people because everybody has their own story. And I think very few people in the world are actually out there trying to destroy other people and trying to be bad. And so I I want to empathize with Draco and Dumbledore, and I'm just like not let into their past enough. But then there's a gift in that of like, I don't know your story. And what matters is the impact that you give to the world. And regardless of your story, I can see clearly that you are crossing certain boundaries, especially Draco, that you are like willing to let Harry, Ron and Hermione die and then cry out for them to save you five minutes later. And what I love about practicing these questions on fictional characters is that like no one gets hurt. When I empathize too much with someone who I don't really know, really what I'm doing is inventing a story about them that probably isn't real. I'm projecting myself onto them and I'm potentially letting someone into my community or my life that shouldn't be there. But with fictional characters, I feel like we can play with these boundaries a little bit more and wonder about the potential of Draco. But a white supremacist who's 18 and storming the Capitol building, I want to have some curiosity about that and wonder about the nature of white supremacy and how to dismantle it. But it's much riskier for me to like assume good intentions in that person. I have to be carrying all these other questions. Whereas when I'm wondering about Draco, I'm not enabling him to do, you know, to stomp on Harry's face again. But I think there might be something actually in the act of reading itself that of reading characters like this, this way that helps us know how and where to draw the lines with these folks, with white supremacists and people who are who are obviously hateful. Toni Morrison has a line in one of her essays where she talks about third person narration. And I thought of this, Vanessa, when you said that if this these books were written from Dumbledore or Draco's perspective, we'd have something different, right? She says, really good third person narration makes the reader convinced that they are the narrator. It makes you inhabit this place of authority without really realizing it. And so like magically you just take up all the assumptions of the narrator. And so all this stuff can hide in the text. And so encountering a text in a different way where we try to push on the boundaries of that, try to say like, what is the text hiding? Not intentionally like trying to hide it from you, but just like, because this text takes a position, there are certain things that are not being seen. So what is this like? And we're not in Draco's head. What is it like in Draco's head? Helps us actually see that our story is limited. And part of the task of building a loving community is actually recognizing that my narrative is limited and there are other ones to consider. Now, having considered them, I can still judge them as inadequate. But right, but the first step is actually doing the work of actually taking myself outside of this position or perspective and trying to inhabit someone else's. It provides us the comfort to sort of the safety of saying, okay, I can extend empathy towards Draco without any real risk to myself because he's a fictional character. But then I also get to kind of flex my critical muscles by inhabiting someone else's perspective before rushing to judgment, which is exactly what I think too many folks are not doing, right? Which is just rushing to judgment before trying to inhabit the perspectives and experiences of others. And I would even add to that, I think that J.K. Rowling does a really good job with the third-person narration that allows us, upon first reading at least, to read as if we are the person making the judgments. And one of the gifts I love about rereading is that we start to see the ways that these implicit biases that she has are working on us, where we are judging people by how long their neck is or how heavy they are, or that they have 
pimples on their skin. And eventually you're like, wait, why is that emblematic of someone's character? But I know, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. Upon first reading, I noticed none of that. Because J.K. Rowling is such a good writer, I fell into that exact Toni Morrison frame of mind. And so I'm I'm excited to be rereading these again and to catch more and more of those and question more and more of those and ask ourselves questions like, where are the students at Hogwarts who might need to be in a wheelchair? How do all the stairs work for that student? Do students who are in wheelchairs just not get to go to Hogwarts? All the things that J.K. Rowling isn't paying attention to, I want to practice looking for those more and more. Yeah, and I think the language of practice is right. I mean, I think that like, you know, especially because we know there are these these exclusions in the narrative gaze of the text, because we know that there are people who are left out of this gaze, it makes me uncomfortable thinking about naming those things as sacred. I don't want to sanctify those kinds of exclusions. But there is something about saying this practice can lead us to whatever the sacred is, but this practice of trying to draw ourselves out of the assumptions we have into the lives and experiences of others we're reading, this kind of reading, this critical reading, becomes a, a practice of sacred reading, becomes a way to actually better build that beloved community and, and do the difficult work of drawing those boundaries, overcoming sorrow and frustration, like all the work that is required in actually bringing more justice to the world and more goodness to the world. This kind of reading actually is a cultivation of the habits that are necessary for that work in the world. In the first run of the series, we were committed to not talking about J.K. Rowling. And in fact, when people would ask us questions like, oh, has J.K. Rowling heard of you guys? We'd be like, who? And I think that that was the right thing for the time. And now I, you know, Matt, you, Ariana, and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I feel like she has made herself known in a way that we cannot ignore her anymore. And so I'm interested in treating a Texas sacred where we are also in conversation with who the author is. I feel like that is not a typical way to go to church on a Sunday. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to you being a professor of religion and literature to guide us through, right? Like some author theory while also treating the text as sacred. Cause I think that that's a blurred line that we're gonna try to walk. I mean, we wanna be able to distinguish between the meaning of a text and the author's intention, right? What the author intends to say or what we can surmise it was the author's intention is not what governs what a text means for us as we read, right? And so we, we're taking away some of the author's authority. And that, yeah, right, who cares what J.K. Rowling thinks about? As far as I'm concerned, she's just one more reader of this text. And her interpretation isn't going to have more validity than in our conversations together, Vanessa, than what you say to me, right? I'm going to care more about what you say in this moment. But if if we're thinking about this reading as a sacred practice, it's not just about like, oh, I'm writing a paper for a class, but actually we are reading these texts to help us live in the world better. Well, J.K. Rowling's a person in the world, right? And so one of the things these books have to do is help us respond against all kinds of things in the world that we see as contrary to the loving spirit that we read in these texts. And that occasionally may be J.K. Rowling and her actions as well. Yeah, it is one of the infuriating things about her betrayal is that her books argue against her stance on transness, right? It is completely counter to what the books are arguing. I think that's right, but I think that's our reading. I think what's dangerous about this text and any text that is read as sacred is that another person with a different agenda could read it towards something else. They could see the lack of trans folk at Hogwarts as a sign that there is no magic among trans folk, right? 
and they could see the lack of diversity or lack of whatever and say, oh, this is sanctifying, right? And that's why that's why I get worried about like calling the text itself sacred. I want to say we are trying to build a community using these texts. And that practice is a sacred practice because it's hard work and because it requires attention and it requires us being in community and it requires you correcting my readings and me being grateful for your readings. And like it requires all that stuff and it and it makes us into the kind of people that can respond to the world better. But we also have to be aware that different people using this book could come to different conclusions and also decide they want to live in the world differently. And I think, again, I think J.K. Rowling is one of those people who, who is inhabiting the world differently based upon her reading of this book. Yeah. I mean, sacred is an act, not a thing, right? It's about how you treat something. It's not the thing itself is what this podcast at least is positing. It's the how, not the what. So we're going to do things a little bit differently on this round of the podcast. Not very differently, but we want to just talk about that up front. So one of them is that we are going to treat critical reading as if it was in and of itself a sacred practice. So our theme conversation is going to be encapsulating that, that critical reading aspect of it. We are going to be asking ourselves, like, what are the assumptions that the text is trying to hide from us? And like I mentioned, as an example, it would be body image or able bodies being the default of body. And is there any other critical lens that we want to bring to the chapter? Where are the women? How are they perceived? Where are the people of color? How are they talked about? So Matt, in a conversation, you, I said, I want us to have more critical reading, but I'm not sure how to do that sacredly. And you answered, you were like, Vanessa, critical reading is a sacred practice. It's something that we practice within the church. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. I think the, the way I want to think about critical reading as a sacred practice is in this way that, that if I am reading critically, then it's, the text is forcing me to investigate my assumptions, imagine myself outside myself, imagine myself into the lives of others so that I can generate more empathy, also so I can know where those lines around, you know, what are the sorrows and frustrations that I can work with and what are the ones that I have to stand against. Because the other thing that we have to realize is, you know, it's not just the text. I am that way too. Like I also have assumptions I make and limitations to my vision and, and my own gaze that needs to be constantly interrogated. And then part of getting outside myself is to practice always trying to stretch my gaze or question my own assumptions, right? I mean, so many of our spiritual practices across the traditions, across time and place are about reflecting upon the nature of the self, reflecting upon the boundaries of the self and trying to stretch or make more porous those boundaries so we can better relate to the world and to others. And I- I think that something that is going to help us do that well is that we're planning on incorporating more guests in this version of the podcast. Even with all of our attempts to do that, there's nothing better to help us see a text from different points of view than actual different points of view, right? Right. And so we're really excited about the guests that we are lining up. One of them is Casper, but there are other people who you've heard before, including Julie Doggett and we're going to have just a slew of new guests that we're really excited to incorporate on this reading. They will make us better readers. We are also finding a new way to pick themes. As many of you know, in the first read through that we did of Harry Potter, we picked themes completely randomly. We had this huge Excel doc with theme ideas. We brainstormed them once and then that was it. And then we got recommendations from listeners and kept adding them. And with very few exceptions, I would definitely say less than five exceptions, we just assigned chapters to themes in this Excel doc that was randomly brainstormed. 
So what we're going to do at the end of every episode, so at the end of today's episode, we're going to pick the theme for the following chapter. And what we're hoping is that then the things that we're left with being curious about, we can think about next week. And so you'll always hear the theme ahead of time, but we're not randomly assigning them. We are going to pick them very intentionally. And one of the things I'm excited about is that we'll hit the same themes, I'm guessing, several times and, you know, have more and more to think about and think more and more deeply about those themes. So Matt, what do you think we should read chapter one, book one through? I mean, this might be too on the nose for you and me, but we keep talking about sorrow and frustration. So which do you want, sorrow or frustration for our first week's week's theme? I think frustration. I mean, I think that's a great way to start just because it's in the chapter for sure. It's been coming up in this conversation. And it's I think it's on our minds, not just because of all the things we've been saying, but just because of the question of authorship. I think it's the right place to start this series again. And so that's I think it's a that's good. So the last thing we want to talk through is just like saying really explicitly what the point of blessings is in this version of the run through. And it's not it's not markedly different than the way that we did it before. But Matt, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm wondering what your hope is when when you are going to bless a character next week. What are you hoping to accomplish through this vehicle of blessing? Yeah, you know, when I think about blessing in my own life, because, you know, as a priest, I, I do blessings, right? And I, I heard this in the way that you use the language of blessing. So I'm probably just repeating something that all your listeners, all uh, our listeners all know so well already. But that blessing isn't sort of like a consecration or the giving of a good thing. It's a It's an act of recognition. It's an act of acknowledgement. And one of the things I'm hoping is not only that our acts of blessing in the books will help me pay better attention and better acknowledge those good and graceful things that are in the text, but that that habit of acknowledgement and attention will will lead me to attend better to myself and what maybe deserves blessing in myself and attend better to others and what deserves blessing in others, right? And so, again, this idea of a practice, right? Like disciplining myself to really pay better attention and to acknowledge grace and goodness to point to it and say, there it is, uh, will make me better at pointing to it out in the world and saying, look, there it is. And then, and also to name it to others, because that's, that's part of the work of blessing is not just to know it in yourself, but also to share with others what is there to be seen. It's sort of like an, I see you, right? It's just acknowledging that you see someone for something that may not be obvious to them or, or that we just want to acknowledge for ourselves as a reminder for ourselves. It's like a post-it. It's a post-it on the soul. That's what we're doing. <laughs> wow. You made that sound gross. <laughs> gross? Really? Okay. <laughs> okay. And then another change that I'm struggling with is whether or not I should bless women and only women again. I'm worried that I'll repeat myself too much because there are often just one woman in a chapter. But I don't know. I love that kind of commitment. So what I did was, you know, I teach this class on Tuesday nights, treating Harry Potter as sacred, and I did a poll and I framed the question so poorly. It was like poll data collection rookie mistake. It was so bad. I asked, should I keep blessing women? Yes, only bless women or B, no, bless Neville. And everybody took the no bless Neville as bless only women and Neville. Like Neville should be grandfathered in. And I love the idea of being like women and Neville because Neville deserves all the blessings. But I think I really am just going to bless everybody because I am more and more uncomfortable, obviously, with essentializing anyone's gender. Hogwarts is not offering 
preferred gender pronouns, understandably. This was in the 90s. That was not a practice that was used widely at the time. But I don't want to rely on the fact of someone's projected gender to be the thing that determines whether or not I bless them. And I think that part of dismantling patriarchy is to do things like bless Neville, who is often mocked for being read as femme, for not being a manly man, for liking soft things like plants rather than liking Quidditch, right? And I think that part of that dismantling of patriarchy is to bless everyone regardless of their gender. I do not regret spending five years blessing only women. I think it was a really important discipline for me to always be searching out wonderful women, but I think it's time to leave that practice behind. I mean, absolutely, you can do a feminist reading without devolving to gender essentialism. In fact, I would say, one would say that feminist readings require that because gender essentialism is a patriarchal structure that is used to to suppress anybody who doesn't who wasn't signaled as or signed as male, right? Like, so like feminist reading means, I would say, avoiding gender essentialism, right? And then the last thing that's going to be a little bit different is for this first book of episodes for The Sorcerer's Stone, we would love to get voicemails that are just offering blessings of gratitude to characters for something that they taught you in their life or something that they did in the books. We want to bring more gratitude into these books. We know that we're going to be bringing more and more criticism, but we also want to be bringing more and more positivity. We want to be bringing more of everything. And so please email us your voice memos at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com that include a blessing of gratitude. And now is the time in which we are going to take a minute to remember the loved ones of our community who have been lost due to COVID. Father John Ellis, who is 83, intelligent, a train collector, and a grandfather. Jerome Cohen, 93, a great-grandfather and cheerful innovator. Rhoda Lillian Doris Blostein Cohen, who is 91, a great-grandmother and an amateur ballerina. Lance Gale, who is 57, a beloved husband, dad, and grandfather. Bill Bowes, who is 86, a papa, husband, and Browns fan. And Carlos Gomez Sanchez, who is 83, a grandfather and lover of wine. May their memories be a blessing. So Matt, one last thing before we say goodbye for today. What is something that you're excited about as we start book one? So a couple things I'm really excited about. As you, I mean, as all of our listeners just did, and as I just did, I just finished right the series. And it's almost like looking at old photographs, like these characters that I got really to know really well and who grew up. Like to see them as children again. I mean, as they're always children, actually, but to see them as younger children before they've gone through a lot of the the hairiest stuff. There's something just really, just kind of lovely and fun about seeing these characters who we've come to know so well, seeing them at the stage in their lives, right? So, like the looking at old photographs aspect is something I'm looking forward to. The other thing I'm really looking for. This is my favorite of the seven books. I always imagine that you know J.K. Rowling was thinking. I might not get the whole series published. Can I get it? Can I get everything I want to say about the power and importance of love into one book? So I got to put it here. And I feel like this book does that. And so I really want to pay attention to love in this book. 
like what love does, what love fails to do, who it protects, who it doesn't protect. And then also to do it in the light of everything we've been saying so far in this episode for like, okay, is but is this is this love? Like this is the is this telling us what love is? Is this the love that we want? Is this the love that right? So like this as sort of a series in miniature, as sort of a, a lens through which to refract the whole series. I'm excited about that aspect of this book, almost as a reading tool for the whole series. And also just just seeing Harry as a kid again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited to pay attention to Harry. I feel like that is something I was so bad about <laughs> upon the whole first series. And it's part of why I'm excited to be blessing everybody. I'm like, I want to, I feel like I was ferreting out women. And so I, I just like lost track of this like darling boy who's orphaned in chapter one and like left on a doorstep to like maybe be eaten by coyotes. I don't know. So I'm really excited to pay attention to him. And he, like, he's a great kid. He's funny and precocious and nerdy and loves Quidditch. And I'm just really excited to, like, pour a lot of love onto Harry. And then, yeah, I am, I am a cliche of myself, so it's the same with Hermione. I love meeting her, and I love seeing a version of her that she could have been if she hadn't met Harry and Ron. Like, I think she could have stayed this, like, very rule-abiding know-it-all who I would have loved just as much, but she would have been a very different person. And so I'm excited to see this before Harry and Ron version of Hermione. Okay, that sounds great. Next week, book one, through the theme of frustration. (laughs) Thank God this book just offers us a lot of it in chapter (laughs) one. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about our episode. Also, please join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We are about to shake up all of our perks, and it is very exciting. And please send us a voicemail of gratitude. And of course, go pre-order my book, Praying with Jane Eyre. Matt, it comes out so soon all of a sudden. That's great. Not soon enough. Okay, I'm sorry it took so long for me to write it. Jeez. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull, and we are part of ACAST. Special thanks this week to Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Casper Terkyle, and as always and forevermore, Stephanie Paulsell. Yay! Can I tell you one thing I love about the about recording on Zoom is that, you know, when we're in the studio, the couple times I've done it, you know, I'm usually Ariana's out of my line of sight, so I can't see her looks of judgment. But like now, they're right there. They're right there in front of us. So it's good because I can correct as I see your disdain accumulating. It's good. Ariana's I face like <laughs> is the best editor it's, in it's the just, world. Yes. So I'm guessing you need so I'm guessing we need to re-record a little bit. <laughs> Your forehead is telling me I messed up. <laughs> <laughs>